Well, I mean, yeah, I've listened to the episodes. I just, <laughs> just want to know how the sausage is made. This is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by a guest who I've literally been begging to come onto the podcast before it was even a podcast. We are almost three years in the making for this happening. He is one of the biggest, most read voices when it comes to city politics here in Vancouver, and we're going to dissect the last episode of This is Van Color with Mayor Kennedy Stewart. So if you haven't listened to that, maybe give that a listen, but we will try to make this as accessible as possible regardless. He is a journalist and columnist for the Vancouver Sun and the province newspapers. He is Dan Fumano. Dan, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you, Mo? Pretty good. I'm so happy to see you. It's Yeah, it's nice to be seen. It's, <laughs> it's nice to see you. It's a long time coming. Yeah, yeah. You are my white whale. I can like <laughs> close up shop after this episode. I've done it. I got Fumano on. Yeah. Done. Podcast over. Yeah. No, I'm glad we could finally make it happen. <laughs> Me too. And also, I want to point out, you do your research as a good journalist would. You brought me beer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, I heard on Andrea Wu's episode, she brought you beers and you commented on it. I could not risk being upstaged by Wu. Um, and you mentioned Tamara Taggart brought you kombucha. Yeah. And you appreciated that. Um, yeah, I want all guests to do that. So it's yeah. nice to see that this trend is starting. Yeah, well, it's, you know, it just <laughs> makes for a more relaxed atmosphere. Absolutely. Obviously, we're going to talk about city politics here in Vancouver, and we're going to frame this around dissecting that last episode with Mayor Kennedy Stewart, which I think had some interesting insights into how he governs, but also some revelations about perception and the politics around large structural issues, particularly homelessness. Before we get into that, I have to admit, I never really followed city politics before I started podcasting, Hmm. but now I'm a big proponent of telling people like, hey, your municipality actually has a lot of influence over your life, Mm -hmm. day-to-day, over your community, and it's interesting and it is important. So as someone who reports on municipal politics, do you feel obliged to entice the readers to pay more attention to city politics? Like, are you trying to pull eyeballs from provincial and federal and global politics and be like, hey, this stuff is happening where you live and it's important because I just feel like based on voter turnout alone, yeah. based on general awareness, we know that civic engagement in municipal politics isn't great compared to provincial or federal politics. So am I off base here no, or, or is true. it like an added pressure that maybe you feel? Yeah, but I mean, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, often it is challenging getting people engaged in municipal politics and civic affairs and stuff. As, as you say, as borne out by the voter turnout, um, even though, again, as you say, these things affect people's lives in a big way. Yeah. Uh, City Hall, you know, it's the closest to you as an individual citizen, sort of it's the kind of closest level of um, government. So everything from, you know, your garbage collection and your mm-hmm. sewers and the police and the parks and a lot of important stuff. Uh, that being said, I mean, I don't know if I feel any special pressure. If you're a jur- When you're a journalist at least the way I think of it, like whatever you're covering, 
whether it's science or provincial politics or federal politics, education, crime, you're always trying to make it interesting for readers. Right. The, the whole thing is to try to take something that might be obscure or arcane or complicated or it might seem remote. Like, what do I care about some species of bee that's dying in the Andes? <laughs> or I don't know. Sure, do they have yeah. bees in the Andes? And, but you come up with something and, and try to convince somebody why they should care and not turn the page or not click away to a different thing. And, and so you put the most interesting thing up first and you try to catch it. You, you try to have a good photo. You mm. try to have a good headline. I mean, the headline and the photo are super important. And then the first line of the story. So you're always trying to, capture people's attention i'm sure it's the same for tv news or radio i've just uh, never have worked in those mediums as much but so yeah to my mind civic politics and not just politics but kind of the way city hall works the way the staff and the bureaucracy works the way the different the different institutions within the city because i try to like i don't know how well i do all the time but what i try to do is not just focus on city politics like mm -hmm. the mayor and council i try to look at the different sort of power brokers and people within city hall both right. the, the powerful and maybe like the lesser sort of known people uh within city hall but then the other institutions around the city the police the fire mm -hmm. uh, you know the just different institutions the way they work with each other or don't work um to try to yeah i feel like you're always trying to explain to the sort of man or woman on the street why they should care about something yeah. and you don't always succeed i mean but yeah yeah, I was just going to say, you know, when I do an episode or a podcast on municipal politics, city politics, I find that I have that added pressure to make it really accessible, but still make it entertaining. And I find that pressure is even more pronounced, particularly when it comes to municipal politics, because I always wonder about the audience or, yeah. or who'd be interested in listening to a city councilor talk for an hour. No, fair <laughs> enough. I don't know. Maybe I don't feel as much pressure because I, I think it's interesting <laughs> and and uh no it absolutely and, is and that's not a knock and no no, no. Anyway. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i mean and i also like i don't even i don't really think of myself as like a political reporter i guess i do mm. cover politicians and politics all the time but i don't really think of it that i think about just um you know like what are the issues and yeah and you know you're writing something but yeah you're always trying to explain to people why they should care about it i'm uh, you're, you're writing something about property taxes and property tax. What could see? What could be more boring than sort of, <laughs> you know, property taxes and how they're applied? And yeah. then, so you just try to. Uh, uh, I would think about some of the stories I was doing recently and something I was working on just quite recently, where you try to uh, explain to people why they should care. So people look at pro property taxes; they don't care. But then, if there's a photo of their favorite restaurant and the owner of their restaurant is saying, "Well, there's this." peculiarity of the property tax system is causing my tax bills right. to go way, way up. And I'm not going to be able to keep in business or so-and-so is already closed. The guy who runs three vets, we've had to close because our property, it's not because our rent went up, it's because our property taxes went up. So when people, if you, if it's just a story about property taxes, they don't care. But if it's a story about, oh, this pizzeria, this barbershop, this coffee shop are going out of business because of property taxes. I love that barbershop that I went there for 32 years. People care about that. Yeah. So that's, that's the job is trying to make people figure out why they should care. Yeah. And it goes back to that idea of, you know, it affects your day-to-day -day life. Totally. It affects your community. I will say the last couple episodes I've had on municipal politics, on city politics did really well. Obviously, I think the the mayor was going to bring in a lot of eyeballs, but 
Counselor Hardwick, the episode with her, yeah. did extremely well oh, good. and then exploded once you wrote about oh. it. <laughs> yeah. So I owe you a thanks for that. <laughs> but I do want to talk about Kennedy Stewart. Obviously, he was here last week on the podcast. I found him to be very persuasive, very yeah. thoughtful, very knowledgeable. And I thought he was able to explain a lot of the issues around Strathcona Park and homelessness that can sometimes be lost in talk radio or TV soundbites. Sure. What did you think of his performance in that interview as a whole? And did you have any like takeaways just listening to it? Yeah, no, nothing surprised me. I mean, I think what's because I've heard him say similar things to mm-hmm. me and in press conferences and publicly and in, on the floor of council. So it was pretty, you know, consistent with what I've heard him say about some of these issues before. I think some of uh, what he's saying are things that maybe kind of get lost in the uh, public discourse sometimes. Like that, you know, it isn't if you're talking about homelessness in Vancouver. It's important to consider in the context of COVID. COVID has made it mm-hmm. made things worse. Now that's not an excuse necessarily, and it's not. I'm not trying to, you know, defend the mayor or defend the city's response on homelessness because the homeless crisis in Vancouver was unacceptable long before COVID, sure. and it, it it remains a gigantic problem in a city with so much wealth. Yeah, it's it's unacceptable that so many. Of our sort of neighbors, people who are Vancouverites, they don't have homes. But COVID has kind of really shown, as the mayor was explaining, um, you know, you had a lot of people who were packed into their friends' rooms or whatever Mm -hmm. in social housing and SROs and stuff that then couldn't do that. So they were kind of just teetering on the edge of homelessness. And then the pandemic has kind of like knocked them out onto the streets and in the parks. And I mean, I guess the key thing that's interesting in the in the mayor's sort of uh, comments about Strathcona is this kind of fundamental thing. There are people out there and you, you know, quoted some of them in your uh, questions to the mayor who sort of say how they let this go on for so long. Um, And, and I mean, apart from the fact that, you know, as the mayor talked about the park board has jurisdiction over the park there, he, he was kind of saying that there is this, there are some people who think you should, get an injunction, clear the tent city, get them out. Cause that is possible, mm-hmm. right? Uh, as he said, you know, cr- when people started putting up tents in crab park, the port port authority got an injunction and cleared it quickly. Right. Yeah. Uh, and of course, tent cities aren't new. There've been tent cities in various Vancouver parks over the years, including under previous administrations. And sometimes they would grow for a while outside the art gallery or at Oppenheimer Plaza mm-hmm. or Oppenheimer park. And they would, and then, you know, occasionally in the past, they would seek an inj- an injunction. And um, but of course, previously, like the last time there was a big tent city in Oppenheimer Park under the Vision Vancouver era, Vision had a majority on council. There was a Vision mayor, and, and there was also a Vision majority on the park board. Right. So I don't know what kind of conversations they're having behind the scenes, but it's a different situation to now where you have one mayor who, who's an independent. And he's one vote out of eleven on council. And so he doesn't have a majority like Gregor Robertson had. And I don't know what his relationship is like with the park board. But um, anyway, it's just different situation. But he was kind of saying that fundamentally there are some people who think get an injunction, clear the park. And he's yeah. saying <laughs> he thinks that's kind of a dumb, old, archaic idea to just go in there and arrest poor people who might not have anywhere else to go uh, unless you actually have somewhere uh, decent yeah. 
to well, offer and them. Well, it just begs the question of then where do they go after that, right? Like, it doesn't answer that. <laughs> no, but there are, I mean, you know, there are some people that think you should just clear the park. Yeah. Um, and, and there are problems with having with these entrenched, prolonged gamins. Absolutely. But there's also problems in all kinds of other housing. Yeah. I did like how he brought it back to, again, a very structural problem. I mean, he, Again, people might say it's excuses or whatever, and I know that he got a little flack of like, oh, you blame the BC Liberals, but yeah, it's or even you know blaming the federal government for getting out of the public housing game. But I think when you look at an issue like homelessness, it does have to be seen as a policy failure. Ultimately, oh yeah, completely. Right? I always think about. Um, do you ever you know Judy Graves? Did you ever talk to her? I haven't, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so yeah. she worked for the city of Vancouver for many years, and she was, um, for decades, she's retired now, but she was most recently the uh, uh, city's advocate for the homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, she's worked with homeless populations for a long time. And I remember one time I was talking to her a few years ago, and I kind of had a, she was talking about, you know, ending homelessness, and and I kind of said something, like, well, Judy, but won't there always be a certain homeless population? Like, especially in a, you know, a coastal city like Vancouver with a more temperate climate. Aren't we going to always have maybe, you know, I, I know that sort of old myth that like everybody comes here. Like a lot of the homeless people in Vancouver are from <laughs> exactly. the region. Yeah. They're, yeah. They grew up here and then for whatever reason have found themselves without a home. Uh, but, but I was sort of saying like, well, you know, isn't there always going to be a certain amount of homeless people? And Judy said to me, she's like, well, Dan, how old are you? And I said, at the time I was in my early thirties or something. And I told her and she's like, well, yeah, so you, you don't remember. But in this, she's like, ask if your parents are from here, ask them. In the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, most of the 80s, there weren't really homeless people in Vancouver. Occasionally, someone might pass out in a park on their way home from the bar, or they might nod off, you know, at a bus stop or something. But there wasn't a whole population of thousands of people that didn't have anywhere. They didn't have, they couldn't go to an SRO, they couldn't go to... She she was just saying, like, it didn't used to be like, and I talked to my parents, and like, yeah, it, it... So... My parents said, yeah, that's true. Like in the Mm -hmm. 70s, it wasn't really, that didn't. And then you think about how did the city change since then? It's not like, it's not like poverty hit the city in a big, it's it's not like the mill closed down or the coal mine closed and everyone's out of work all of a sudden and the economy is the opposite. There's way more wealth here than there there was ever before, right? Um, But with it comes, you know, inequality, disparity. So the same thing you look at in the, in, it's not unique to Vancouver. A lot of cities around the world that have the most wealth, San Francisco, Seattle, London, New York, have these really entrenched problems with homelessness where people yeah. can't afford places to live. And it's, you know, they've studied this in a lot of those cities and it's not necessarily connected to a rise in poverty, it's a rise in inequality. Yeah. So anyway, that's a really long-winded thing. But no, it's, but, it's complicated. No, but I think it's important to stress that sometimes when we look at this, because then I think the response also requires a long-term response. Yeah. Right? And you can't really be sold on this idea of like, if you make me mayor, I'm going to fix homelessness in two years or whatever. Like, it's just not possible. And it requires multi-tiered levels of government working on this together, you know, either in urban regions or, or, or whatever. But I do want to talk about this for one second in mm. terms of Mayor Kennedy Stewart. When I asked him if he could have done anything differently, particularly mm-hmm. when it came to Strathcona, I found his answer really fascinating because usually the stock answer to a question of would you have done anything differently to a politician, mm. the stock answer is like, 
well, I did the best at, uh, at the time with mm-hmm. all the available knowledge at the time. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, there are things that I would have done differently. But I thought Mayor Stewart paused. I thought he was really thoughtful in his answer. And he said, no, you know, he basically said he wouldn't have done anything differently. He kind of touched on maybe bringing a motion forward a month earlier, mm-hmm. but he seemed pretty confident in terms of the job that he's done. So is he right? Has he done everything in handling the largest tent city in Canada, aside from getting an injunction and just clearing it out, like based on what his opponents say or, or what people bring up at City Hall? Yeah, you know, it is it is interesting because with Oppenheimer Park, the mayor publicly came out and said, basically asked the park board to transfer jurisdiction. He said, mm-hmm. if you guys are willing to temporarily transfer the jurisdiction over this one city park to the city or the mayor's office or whatever. He said, you know, he he wanted that so that he could try to use his power with the office of the mayor to try to resolve the situation. Now, he wasn't going to say what that would be. He wasn't going to say, give me power so I can get an injunction and clear the park. Mm -hmm. He just want, but what was it? I don't think he ever said that once it set up over in Strathcona Park. Now, maybe that maybe that's just because he already had been rebuffed once and he knew the park mm. board wasn't wasn't going to do that. And so it was pointless to sort of ask a, a second time. Um, or maybe because the situation had sort of changed materially and it was a, in the middle of a pandemic. Because, you know, when he said that before, it was before the pandemic. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, has, like... I guess fundamentally, if you are of the mind that getting an injunction and going in there and clearing the place, whether or not people have sort of suitable homes to go to, then then I think, yeah, then, then, then you're not going to like his response to it. But he has kind of pretty clearly said that he's on the side of um, trying to work with senior governments to find places for these people. Now... It's it's just a it's a really tough situation. I mean, it's, it's interesting too because obviously he has he has some experience with injunctions from the other side of it. Yeah, because he was arrested when he was a <laughs> right. member of parliament. At uh, I believe it was an injunction. I mean, I think that's what it was. It was contempt of court for yeah. basically taking part in a protest at a, a Kinder Morgan protest um, after an People injunction. People forget that he's a badass. Well, he's yeah, been arrested. <laughs> and he was in a rock band. And he was a rock, he played bass in a rock band. He's a rocker. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're right. He made he made this divide, right? He said that like yeah. either you could clear out the park and have the homeless population move somewhere else, or you could work with senior levels of government to house these folks appropriately. And there was also a political punch there, right? Like he was branding himself. Exactly. And then also branded Vancouver as compassionate. We're a compassionate city. And then in doing so, he's kind of branding his opponents as not compassionate Mm -hmm. and certainly not having a plan. Is this issue, the the tent city issue in particular, going to be the key issue that defines Kennedy's term as mayor? Like I know George Affleck, who... Might be running, yeah. might, might yeah. not be running, who knows? But he's a political beast, right? Mm. And he's a columnist at Vancouver's Awesome. And that was his argument, that this is going to define Kennedy's legacy. Uh, but again, I mean, there were tent cities during previous administrations in Vancouver. Maybe not as big, maybe not as long running. I'm not sure. But um, but as controversial in terms of some of the coverage that we see and some of the things that we've seen. You know, we've seen oh, yeah. murder and some really serious assaults and these fires and you know, has it ever been this bad in terms of a tent city? You know what? There were murders and sex assaults 
and all kinds of crimes going on in SROs and sure. privately owned apartments and privately owned houses. Now, that's not excusing anything. That and and you know when the police say that they are concerned about the public safety, I have no reason to not believe them. And they're mm-hmm. they're sort of the experts in public safety. And and you know, I mean, when the the, the murders two murder suspects were arrested for that uh, the home invasion mm-hmm. um, up near Queen Elizabeth Park, I think it was horrific crime. And you know they they're they're accused, but they haven't been proven guilty of anything. But the thing that's concerning was not that one of the guys lived in the tent city. The fact that he, he was living in the tent city, that doesn't, one of the accused lived in the tent, that doesn't mean anything. He could have lived anywhere. Sure. But the fact that when the police went there, they said that they basically like were surrounded and like yeah. weren't, were unable to- To go in To go into his him. tent, I think, and yeah. execute a search warrant. So that's, that's concerning if that's true, because this is a pretty, again, the guy's not- guilty of anything he hasn't been convicted of anything but he's accused of a absolutely horrific crime and if yeah anyway i mean i i don't i wasn't there i don't know exactly what happened but that's a concerning situation they're describing but um but yeah no i think you are right that he is that the mayor seems like he's trying to sort of carve out a uh you know two sides of an issue and saying that uh that he is of the mind that finding homes for these people is the priority um, and the park board has paved the way now that a court injunction is possible, but it's contingent on having reasonable homes for these people to go to. So if if they've got enough housing options for everybody there, then the, the, the park board trustees have authorized the general manager of parks to seek a court injunction to clear the park so that anybody who's been offered a reasonable place in housing mm-hmm. and decides to stay in the park uh, to prove a point or as an activist or for whatever reason, uh, they could then be subject to arrest, I guess. Right. For, so anyway, but yeah, I think you're right. The mayor's kind of carving out two sides of an issue that, you know, he might campaign on next year and say mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, if the George Afflecks of the world are in favor of having police come in there on horseback and and scatter these poor people who have nowhere to go, and instead yeah, he really of being, painted that picture, eh? Yeah, yeah, that, which, I which I think is, which, you know, I think it's probably intentional, and and he did it a couple times on on uh, last week's episode uh, for the um, the supervised uh, drug consumption site in Yale Town, talking about how he was supporting that. The mm-hmm. MPA counselors and the MPA the MPA caucus opposed it and stuff. So he said, you know, there are divisions within council on uh, approaching drugs as a public health measure now. I'm sure some of the MPA caucus members would disagree with his characterization of that. But sure. I think he is trying to, you can see, you know, he's a smart politician who's been elected a handful of times in different levels of office. And mm-hmm. he, you can see the issues that he maybe wants to start setting up now for next year's election. When he, he had this, uh, he had an amendment to somebody else, to uh, Lisa, Lisa, Councillor Lisa Dominato's motion, uh, where he was trying to... Um, introduce a pilot project this is on, on the subject of housing now where I'm jumping all over the sure, place here yeah. so. but just talking about like issues where he's trying to carve out sort of a, a lane yeah. to campaign on next year yeah he had this idea for a pilot project where you could uh, sort of densify single family housing lots I think I, yeah, I, should, I should remember the details but it's something sick you could have up to six or eight units on a single lot depending on the lot size okay some of them would be sort of secured some of them would be stratified so you could sell them some of them would be rental secured at a certain rate of Hmm. rent and and then it got shut down 
um, his attempt to move this thing forward. And so he immediately, or his campaign manager, I can't remember um, his actual title, but the guy running the that they had a press Team release Kennedy's, ready. They had a press release ready yeah. to go. And it was like, NPA is <laughs> crushing your home ownership dreams. They're crushing home affordability. Yeah. Um, so that, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear more about that between now and next year. It'll be, because he was trying to carve it out. He's saying the NPA is the party of longtime old homeowners who want the low density backyard mm-hmm. single family neighborhoods to stay as they are the and, preservationists and the preservationists yeah. he used that word yeah all right would he use that word or did you i remember that word came up describing councillor hardwick um, in, uh, i'm not sure but i mean oh, no, he, no, well, no what, he, what he said was uh she wanted to keep the city uh, turn the city into a museum right yeah. that's what that's what it was that's it stuck out it's a good quote so i was i was yeah you always gotta have your ear for the good quote yeah, it's interesting. I think he's, you're right. He's, he is a political beast. He is kind of setting his own narrative that way. And people can judge it for what it is. I'm almost thinking that if his opponents push too hard on this tent city thing and try to paint him as the mayor of tent cities or whatever, and now he has a really powerful partner in BC housing, in BC housing minister David Eby. Eby. Yeah. And unlike perhaps before where there was a pressure to balance the budget, I feel like this provincial government mm. during COVID with a majority government maybe might be feeling a little freer to spend more money and invest more in communities. That almost might backfire because if you if you tell people for a year, two years, this guy's the tent city mayor or whatever, and then he cleans it up and there's no big tent city that pops up afterwards, you're conceding that he's done a good job. <laughs> yeah. And then there's an the announcement this week with uh, the federal, because for a long time there was all these complaints that the federal government was talking a big game about housing. They made a big deal. You know, Canada's back in the housing game, but the money wasn't really flowing, flowing. But then, you know, there's been some, there was the big announcement this week, uh, buying three more hotels to house people. So, you know, some of that, that money seems to be flowing. Yeah, I think he actually made a good case for, and that's why I kept asking him in terms of like, we've received this money, is this Mm, money coming? mm -hmm. And, you know, he was very straightforward in saying yes, and and probably because it is coming or it's it's being received, Mm. because that's how he positioned himself, right? He promised that he was going to get all this money from from all different levels of government, and he's getting it clearly i mean it's coming from somewhere yeah i mean no no yeah yeah you're right that is how he positioned himself before he got elected during the last campaign he said you know he used to be an i used to be an mp and i've still got my pin and i can and i know all these people in ottawa and i know some of the people in victoria and and you know so that he positioned himself as that and it's i i'm not sure exactly how much it would be interesting to look i'd like to look it up to see how much uh federal housing funding have has vancouver secured or or metro Mm -hmm. vancouver secured in the last two years compared to the previous eight or whatever but i mean it does seem like he has more willing partners in ottawa and victoria Mm -hmm. than gregor robertson had for most of his time in office now gregor robertson got criticized by you know including george affleck when george Mm -hmm. affleck was an mpa counselor uh he criticized gregor and vision for spending a lot of city money on housing and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember Councillor Affleck saying that, look at, you know, he he said he had a lot of sympathy for homeless people, and I don't want to be putting words in his mouth, but as I recall, what he said to me was something like, you can look at Burnaby, where 
they say that under Derek Corgan, who was the mayor at the time, they were saying they were they were steadfast saying housing and homelessness is a federal and provincial responsibility. We're going to spend money on things that are municipal responsibilities. And so Burnaby had like a big budget surplus. They had their their financial health was robust. Mm -hmm. And then Vancouver was spending money on affordable housing initiatives that wouldn't traditionally have been the in the wheelhouse of a municipal government, but they were just trying to deal with it. And and also health issues like overdoses and stuff, right. trying to respond to that. Things that traditionally would not have been in the bailiwick of a municipal government, but they were just trying to adapt to what was in front of them. So, I mean, that's a that's a that's you know one area too where you could see uh, whether it's George Affleck or somebody else could say, you know, your property taxes keep going up, I'm the guy, and then you know, someone like Kennedy Stewart could say, well, yeah, your property taxes have gone up, but I'm trying to prevent overdose deaths and get homeless people off the streets. Mm -hmm. And that's, so you can see, I don't know, it might be an interesting election. I don't know if Affleck's going to run, but I certainly curious. Sure. This is kind of a weird question and you could tell me how much you want to answer it. How do you find Kennedy Stewart just as a person? Like, do you think he has that relatability, that likability? Obviously, he won an election, so, you know, he is likable. I'm just wondering how you see him interacting with the public, especially at a time when he can't really do that, well, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, obviously now he can't, but um, I mean, I could say in terms of interacting with the media, um, he's before COVID. So mm -hmm. the first year, I guess, of his mandate he he was really good at dealing with the media hmm. um and not that i'm saying he's bad now but just everything is different now right you mean like but he was accessible he was accessible he was um so it's you know i wasn't covering city hall when it during when gregor robertson was first elected in his first term starting in 2008 so i don't know what vision was like back then hmm. um but by the time by the time i was covering city hall gregor was already in his third term and not that he was inaccessible to the media, but, you know, he did his job and it was fine and you could talk to the counselors and stuff. But but when Kennedy came in, he was definitely more accessible to the media because uh, he would do these regular media briefings. I think it was every every other week. Like oh, really? Every, every okay. two weeks. Hmm. And he said for him, it, you know, he, when he was a back, I guess he was a backbench MP in Ottawa and he was just kind of used to, you know, as a federal politician, used to doing that stuff mm -hmm. where he would do these um he would do yeah just like a media appearance where he would kind of get up he would let everybody know let he would send all the media and say we'll do it on tuesday afternoon or whatever and then he'd get there and he'd go through a bunch of things like here's a bunch of cool stuff we're doing at the city i'm excited about this i'm sad to announce this i'm happy to announce this and then next week we're going to be doing this and then now open up any questions from anybody about anything wow and that's and it was cool. good yeah. it was good and he would take questions on any range of subjects from any number of reporters and he'd usually just say that you're done obviously you know, once covid happened you couldn't do that anymore but um but that was a nice thing that i think um was useful what happened after covid i mean obviously he can't do that i guess just virtual press conferences and stuff do you um, find him still accessible yeah i mean when i yeah i mean when i need to get a hold of him um i don't i don't find him inaccessible but it's just it's just a bit different like you don't it's it's harder to kind of throw in one question about a totally unrelated subject um 
to whatever the thing of the day is, but obviously it's just a weird time. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I couldn't, it's just such, it's such a weird time with everything locked down um, that I couldn't really say he's inaccessible. I mean, he's doing press conferences, but they're just weird virtual press conferences. Like, I want to bring up this one idea, and it was—I thought it was actually an interesting moment in the podcast where I brought a media narrative to Kennedy, and he was yeah. very confused by it, and then I felt very stupid. I brought up this idea that some people portray him, and obviously we're talking about op-ed media, we're talking about Twitter, sure. you know, we're talking about these forums in which people are communicating about city politics. Sure. That some people see him as he's done nothing and he just raises taxes. Yeah. And so I brought I brought this uh, narrative to him and he was like confused. You know, <laughs> he was kind of like, no, people don't see me that way. I'm sure that his machinery, his team has internal polling. Sure. But do you think that narrative that I presented to him actually exists? And not just on Twitter, but I I kind of asked around with friends that I, mm-hmm. that I know, right? And a lot of them were... To be honest, they were just like, we don't know, or we're neutral, whatever. But then a couple of friends that I had that did have opinions gave this very negative, but very pronounced opinion that I was seeing, and that's why I brought it to them. Yeah. Does that exist? Is is there a a sizable portion of the population that thinks that? You know, I couldn't tell you how sizable it is, but I mean, you know, there there are people who say that, Mm -hmm. um, describe him as an absentee mayor or something, an invisible mayor. But I, I mean... I think if you were going to say that you, you you can't really say that again. You know, I'm not trying to defend the mayor because I don't think that's my role at all. But you can't say describe him as an absentee mayor or something without acknowledging the fact that there's this pandemic and it's a very sure. weird time and like you can't be out at events and yeah. making public appearances and doing press conferences and doing all the things a mayor would normally do and. Could he be more visible though, despite the pandemic? Like, could he be doing maybe, more? Maybe, but I, yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I'm not. I mean, I, I he talked on the thing about uh, on the podcast. He talked about Twitter. Was, you know, if you, yeah, if you but want, Twitter aside, I'm talking about yeah, just no, public appearances but, on Zoom or whatever else. I don't know. I guess, but who's? I don't know who's looking for that. I mean, I I do. <laughs> Apparently, lot. his critics, right? Yeah, but and I don't know where you're hearing it. I mean, I hear it on. I do hear as you see it on Twitter. Yeah, and. It could be that he and his team are just not that worried about Twitter. And then, you know, you could have George Affleck criticizing him. But again, you know, if George Affleck wants to run against him, then presu- and maybe he doesn't. But um, but it would make sense that George would criticize him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, his team might not be worried that much about a Twitter or maybe they are. I don't know. But you, you do, you know, one always remember that like Twitter is not like an accurate representation of the Vancouver electorate at large. So the thing, whatever is like super popular on Twitter or super hated on Twitter, it might be popular or hated in the real world, but not necessarily. That's not necessarily so. They sure, are often, yeah. they are often, you know, not, it's often not an accurate sort of picture of what the public thinks. So anyway, um, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah, and Twitter, I think, exists in its own ecosystem, which may or may not reflect reality. Like it's it's hard to say, right? It's 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 it's, but, it's, it's something, but it's but it's not. But yeah, I find when you, when a... you have like a regional Twitter ecosystem, mm. there is still a lot to learn. I mean, when you see mm. 
and, and I don't want to keep picking on George. George seems like a very nice guy. I haven't met him. Oh, he's a very nice guy. But, you know, you see like a Mark Marison who's picking on Kennedy all the time. You look at a, a Karm Sumo from D- Daily Hive, who's, oh, yeah. who's always very critical yeah. of, of Kennedy Stewart. So you just see these patterns. And I don't know. I just start to wonder how much they bleed into the regular populace, or at least the voting populace sure. in terms of what they think. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I think you're right. How fucked up is city council? Because <laughs> we're we're on a day, and, and I want to be clear, we're recording on Thursday before the Good Friday, and last night, Councillor DiGenova tweeted that democracy had died. In all caps. In all caps. was It was very dramatic, and so people, you know, kind of rushed to it, and I, and I know a couple of people that, like, listen in on every council meeting. And I, you know, DM them, what happened? You know, I thought something big had happened. Even they couldn't really figure it out. <laughs> it was this real weird motion. And, and yeah. you couldn't explain it in one tweet, right? Like, that's how in the weeds it was. And I got a, I got a, a Twitter DM to a, a, from a fellow journalist to a group of local journalists. Yeah. You know, sending Councillor DiGenova's tweet <laughs> saying, hey, guys, apparently there was a coup. We missed it. <laughs> Democracy died. But when that language is heated, and I'm not just saying, you know, I, I don't want to pick on her. I'm just saying, like, you hear these stories about how things are so dysfunctional and motion upon motion, it, it, amendment yeah. upon amendment. And it's, I don't know, like, you, you're, you're, this is your beat. Is it frustrating to cover? Is it different than other city councils? Well, what's, your, what's your take? It's definitely different than the previous Vancouver council. Which had a majority. Had a majority. Kind of well, I mean, most, most councils have had a majority for the last yeah. however many decades. Um, so is this a, a consequence when we talk? And I don't know if the dysfunction is there. I'm just going oh, yeah. off what I read. But oh, yeah. Is this dysfunction because there's no major party? They're, like they're all kind of fractured? Or is it because of the personalities that are there? Um, well, I mean, any council or any group of people doing any job together is going to have a bunch of different personalities, whether it's a newsroom or a hockey team or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's definitely different personalities there. I, and I think it's mostly, I think it's mostly two things is that you have, the main thing is that, yeah, there's no majority. Yeah. And you have also have like this big diversity of, you know, one cope, one independent counselor, three greens, four, NPA, one one city, an independent mayor. Like that's a bigger diversity of kind of party affiliations maybe ever on Vancouver Council. I'm not sure if, yeah, I don't know when the last time there would have been that many different kind of affiliations on council. Yeah. And then, because Mike Harcourt was the last independent mayor mm-hmm. in the mid 80s. And I think there were three different parties, Team Cope and NPA represented on council okay um and so it is a more diverse council than we've seen in a long time but the other thing is too that most of the people are new to council there's only two returning Mm -hmm. counselors and so nine out of 11 faces in the room are new i mean now they've been there for two years but definitely in the first year there was a lot of um just kind of yeah, people like stumbling over some of the rules, which is understandable. It's um, 
But now it's. But those two also do lead the largest cohorts, technically, yep. right? Green, yep. The yep. Greens and the NBA. Yeah, the Greens and the NBA. So you would imagine that those two would maybe provide a leadership role yeah. in terms of their yeah, caucuses. But, but, but those caucuses, too, don't vote as blocks That's necessarily, true. That's right? True. They're, yeah. And so, again, I mean, depending on your perspective, you could. You can see that as a good thing. Um, these meetings can be tough to cover and like tough to watch um, just in terms of sort of knowing what's going to happen. Like if you tell your editors like, oh, this this agenda item should be finished by this time and I'll file a story and have it in for the print deadline and tomorrow's paper. And then sometimes it, it really doesn't go that way because they spend a long time dealing with something that you really thought was not going to take a long time. And Anyway, I'm not saying that council should base their days around the Vancouver Sun and Province's print schedule, but it would be nice. Um, but they, depending on your perspective, you could see this as, you know, maybe it's not the worst thing. So previously, when Vision had a majority, mm -hmm. um, they were criticized for they would just decide what they were going to do behind closed doors, whether or not that was true. There was this kind of perception mm -hmm. that they would kind of, oh, here's what we're going to do. The caucus would have their meetings and they'd decide. And then if the NPA kind of maybe brought forward a good idea, they'd just shoot it down because it was from the NPA. Mm. And the NPA was kind of the de facto opposition party. And and then the vision would kind of just, you know, they were criticized for ramming through their agenda, which, I mean, it's one of these funny things with democracy. It's like someone gets elected and doesn't do what they say they're going to do. You criticize them. They get elected and they say what they're going to do. Oh, they're just ramming through their agenda. Yeah. So anyway, but then, so vision, it was different. The, the meetings were different. They kind of, I, I think in vision's first term, which, and when I wasn't covering city hall, it sounded like it was pretty different. They had a lot of these long meetings and um, pretty raucous kind of meetings sometimes, but in the third term, yeah, it just seemed a bit you could pretty reliably look at the agenda and have an idea of what was going to happen. But now it's just very different. You've got a lot of amendments on the fly, amendments to amendments to amendments. You got sometimes people withdraw their own amendments and, and then you get staff kind of standing up sometimes and saying, Hey, we've talked to the legal department and this might not be legal. And so you get stuff happening on the fly sometimes where you're watching it and you're like, well, this is kind of crazy. But then, you know, you could say that, well, maybe that's a, a more kind of authentic, organic, uh, democratic kind of process. Right. It's messy. Gotta, you still got to get shit done. Oh, yeah. But, you know, I mean, they're getting through a lot of stuff. It just takes a long time. But it, but that's an issue, too. I mean, it is a issue how long it takes them to get through stuff. The um, And and how much how much work they're assigning to council. They're having uh, – or, sorry, how much work the they're assigning staff. to staff. Yeah. So every – Every, you know, couple of weeks, they're assigning a lot of stuff to staff. Mm -hmm. um, and it came up repeatedly. Uh, Saidu Johnston, the previous city manager who's left the city now, but he would often raise that in meetings. He'd say, guys, we've talked about this. Like, you can't just keep piling new stuff on city staff. You know, we, we, we're not hiring new staff to do these new major projects you're assigning. Um, so we kind of need to prioritize. And so that came up, you know, pretty often previously. It's, it's changed a bit with um, COVID, but do you think this experiment is over? Do you think Vancouverites, it, it, the ones you mean that are Vancouver? plugged, what's the, that? The great experiment of Vancouver. No, <laughs> yeah, just back it in the Vancouver it Charter. <laughs> no, I meant the the experiment of having this type of mixed council. Do you think that this oh. is over in terms of people that are plugged into municipal politics will look at it and be like, this doesn't work. We need to really rally or coalesce around a party well i don't know i mean people are going to vote for who they're going to vote for I, it's um 
What I never understood is how a party could get, like, how does Adrian Carr, Melissa DiDinova, how do they get the most votes, but then whoever voted for them didn't just vote for the rest of the slate? (laughs) Well, name recognition. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) So people knew their names. Yeah. Um, They had been on council already, and they'd seen their names. I mean, I I like to think maybe they'd seen their names in the newspaper. Hopefully they were reading the newspaper. No, but they'd heard, they'd seen seen them on TV and they'd heard them on the radio and they might've seen them at events. You know, they go to parades or Mm -hmm. banquets or galas. And so, you know, they'd been around. I mean, Councillor Carr has been around for a long time. But if everyone who voted Councillor, maybe Councillor Carr is a bad example because she didn't have that many. I think the Greens only had one more candidate. No, no. Well, they had two more elected, so... No, no, no. Two more elected, but I think oh, one that didn't get it elected, wasn't, right? Yeah. I can't remember. Maybe, one or two. Yeah, I think you might be right. But the NPA could have formed a majority on council, yeah. right? So everyone who voted Melissa to Genova, why didn't they just fill out the rest of the ballot with the NPA people? I don't know. Good question. I don't... It makes no sense to me. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but, do, but you think... You don't think that there's going to be a demand to to coalesce around one party in the future now after this council parties seem to still matter um but they're definitely not as powerful as they used to be right like because of the campaign finance rules that the province brought in Mm -hmm. so for the last few elections leading up to 2018 uh, you had vision and um the npa raised huge amounts of money from these big deep-pocketed donors both individuals and corporations. Mm-hmm. They got huge donations. They raised a lot of money. They spent a lot of money. Um, but then all of a sudden, the provincial government, the BCNDP, changed the campaign finance rules, banned corporate donations, banned union donations, set a strict cap. I think it was only $1,200 yeah. per person per year. So that changed, that you know definitely changed the power of those two big parties anyways. I think the Greens and COPE and One City, I'm not sure... I, th- I think those other parties already didn't accept at least corporate donations. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about union donations, but so I think it aff- the new rules affected them less. Right. They were kind of more focused on small donors and kind of grassroots. Um, but it certainly, I mean, vision obviously was wiped out from council. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, I mean, they'd been in power for 10 years. That's a long time to be in power and people kind of get tired after the longer any party or any politician is in power, presumably it kind of, I mean, I guess that's kind of contrary to what I was just saying about how Diginova and Carr had helped them because people knew their names. Right. But, but I guess it's different from, it's different being there, being around to being the party in power. It's just interesting because for all the opposition that I see to Kennedy Stewart, I don't see an organization forming. Around him? No, in opposition to Oh, in opposition. Like one singular, you know, like. Yeah. You, if you had opposition to the premier, you would probably get a strengthening BC Liberal Party. Yeah, well, I mean, so the, this the case, NPA would be the natural um, opponent, but then you know they've got they've got a bunch of issues over there. Yeah, exactly. Like the, you know, the NPA is still the single largest block, like caucus within yeah. council. Yeah. But the elected caucus has a pretty obvious divide with the party leadership. And uh, the board that runs the party, and we've written a bunch of stories about that. It's been a it's a situation that's been developing over the last year plus. Um, and I don't know if a natural 
mayoral candidate has necessarily emerged from even the elected caucus, right? You could argue maybe Councillor Hardwick, but she's a lot different in a lot of respects to her her colleagues. Yeah, I mean, she's obviously pretty openly critical of the mayor when she came on your show. She was pretty candid about that, um, and she she said to uh, she said to you that she was you know kicking the tires on a possible mayoral run. I think that's what she said, right? She, she did, yeah, yeah. yeah. She didn't, didn't rule it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so Ken Sim obviously has already said that he wants to run, but currently his plan is to run against the NPA because mm-hmm. so he ran for the NPA in 2018. Um, but has said that considering the, dis- you know, the apparent dysfunction and the sort of turmoil within the party's board right now, he doesn't want to run with them, but wants to run against them. Mm-hmm. So, and that could change if the sure, board changes, who you knows, know. but yeah, but he's out there raising money. He said he raised 400 grand last year in wow. a non-election year. And with that $1,200 per person limit. Wow. Uh, it seems like a lot to me in an election yeah. <laughs> year. <laughs> Setting parties aside, I mean, we're looking at an election that is a year and a half away, mm. right? And so given that more than half of the term is up, I think we can start to sort of formulate what the big issues will be heading into next year. Housing affordability was obviously the big one last time around in 2018. It's still a big issue, but I almost feel like the homelessness crime safety issue is kind of like overtaking it now. Yeah. And again, I think Kennedy Stewart was right in saying the biggest issue is COVID. Fair enough. Sure. But outside of that and putting a COVID lens on everything. But if someone can just run for mayor and say, I am the mayor who will beat COVID vote for me. No more COVID. Get rid of it. No one. It's over. They won't win. They won't win. I don't know. That'd be pretty good. Depends how COVID goes. Right. I guess. But no, yeah, well, I, I don't know, and maybe this is a cop out to say, but like, housing affordability and homelessness—it's on the same it, spectrum, it's, sure. Right. They're, it's, they're but we're talking about two different segments of society. Yeah, but they're connected. Like, it's all connected. I don't. Um, I would agree with you, and I, and I absolutely do agree with you. I just don't know if people see it that way. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. If you're struggling to afford your, you know, apartment, mm-hmm. then it means that like if sort of a middle wage, middle income kind of earner is struggling to afford an apartment, mm-hmm. then that means that a lower income wage earner who maybe previously would have been able to afford that apartment is really struggling and is maybe couch serving. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the city has said that again, pre-COVID things, I don't know, everything's different with COVID, but pre-COVID the city had started observing that the SROs in like the downtown east side and other parts of town, but like the sort of housing of last resort, like these SROs, uh, they were noticing there were more like uh, minimum wage earning people like working in like service jobs Hmm. and students and things like that, like lower income people were living in SROs. So it was kind of, that kind of means that because they couldn't afford sort of basement suites or apartments elsewhere. So yeah. that kind of bump, that means that the sort of a person with just who's on welfare or on income assistance, um, who, you know, previously might've been living in that SRO. Now they're, they're out of that SRO. And once you're out of their SRO, then you're, maybe you're in a shelter or maybe you're on the street. So 
it's all connected to that apartment and then that apartment is connected to condos and other things in the housing system anyway but i i take your point that on a campaign it's maybe hard to get across that whole thing but just yeah when you talk about housing affordability it's certainly connected to homelessness and then homelessness is connected to crime and not to say that homeless people commit crime but all of these things are poverty is connected to crime right and so yeah, and a but, certain type of crime. Who should say as yeah, well? Right? Yeah, no, but um, but no, but those definitely do seem to be um, hot issues right now. Just a sense of, especially sort of downtown, but also maybe in some other parts of town, there is a sense of street disorder and crime mm-hmm. that has people really afraid well i see um, all these groups popping up and i know i've given them shit in the past but it's like i see these online groups popping up and yeah, it's hard what, to tell like the, like, what, sort of like astroturf groups those get like and again they're accused and i've accused them of being astroturf groups but then some people say no no they're real they have membership well, and if there's real people involved well if the real if there are real people who are out there um giving their names and then that's well say for vancouver tried that and it didn't work out very well (laughs) yeah yeah but i mean uh yeah i don't know that much about those groups really like i uh regardless like if we if we take if we take it for face value that perception is reality and there's groups that are pushing this and there's clearly people that take interest in at least following or observing those groups online and we see it in the media too, right? And it's not a, this is not a media criticism, but there are a lot of stories about crime oh, yeah. and and things that happened, and there are things happening. And again, this was also discussed with Mayor Stewart mm-hmm. in terms of how that lines up with stats. I'm just wondering how big of an issue that becomes. I almost feel like it is overtaking the housing issue, and I feel like it is somewhat related. Yeah, but I don't know. That's, yeah, but that's I feel mean, I get just from yeah. as an observer of news. No, 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 no. It it certainly is. It's certainly an issue, but especially downtown and in and around the downtown east side, but then also the West End, but then also other parts of the downtown south in Yaletown and Strathcona. So like sort of the areas around the downtown mm-hmm. core, I don't know if it's if things are super different in, you know, everywhere south of Broadway. Right. Which, and, you know, in the media, like often I think, I mean, my own my own columns i wish i did a better job of covering like everything south of say king ed like we we often you know we don't i often you know don't get out to marpole or sunset or Mm. like killarney and i think there are these are big areas of the city i don't know if they are experiencing this same kind of sense of street chaos Mm -hmm. i don't get that impression when i go there now um Anyway, it's not to belittle these issues. And I do think there is a genuine feeling of, you know, uh, sort of lawlessness um, in some of the downtown neighborhoods and people are afraid. And, um, and, and you know, I, again, I think it's certainly connected to COVID. Like you have, yeah. it's changed everything. I was just thinking about this while we were chatting and it's, it's sort of related. But do you ever notice that when a homeless person commits a crime, they're always identified in news media as homeless, but if a housed person commits a crime, they're not identified as crimes by housed, housed people are up seven hundred percent. Right? Yeah. Um, no, I don't know. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
just saying. I mean, yeah. it's the same identifier. It's two sides yeah. of a, the same coin. Talking to Kennedy, I, I want you to help me make sense of the types of political lanes we might see mm. heading into next year. So mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, we have Kennedy who's, uh, you know, on the left, progressive Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On the other side, we have Colleen Hardwick, the preservationist. Mm-hmm. Doesn't want to see a ton of development. What do we have in the middle? Who are the other lanes and, and, and what can, or where can they be filled? Well, I'm... I think, you know, Ken Sim is, as far as I'm aware, the only person who's officially kind of publicly said he wants to run. Sure. Again. And, and he's probably like, what, a pro the business. business? Run the city like yeah. a business. I'm a, he's an accomplished business guy and he's going to run the city like a business. Efficiency. Yeah. And um, so he would also like a development problem. Well, good question. I mean, his housing platform leading up to the last election I mean, it certainly wasn't like <laughs> pro it wasn't like yeah. pro development the way yeah. Hector Bremner's was, right? It was remember his big kind of housing, or at least the one that kind of stuck in the public basement consciousness suites. was allowing a second basement suite. Mm-hmm. Like right now, you can have one basement suite. What if you could have two basement suites? <laughs> um, and I don't know. Maybe he'll run on that again, or maybe he'll come up with something different. But he was, yeah, he was largely wants to help small businesses thrive and help medium-sized businesses become big businesses and mm-hmm. make Vancouver an attractive place to do business. And mm-hmm. um, But, you know, I mean, he certainly talked about poverty and inequality and other things too, but I, I think it's fair to say, at least in the mind of a lot of the public, he had kind of positioned himself as the business mayor. Yeah. And then, I mean, you were saying other people might have said maybe Mark Marison might run. I haven't heard Mark say that, but um, if he did, uh, he was involved with Hector Bremner's campaign last time around, right, with uh, Yes Vancouver. Right. And I'm not aware of, I don't know if Mark has ever been a political candidate that I can recall. I don't know if he's ever been a candidate himself, but he's certainly been involved with lots of campaigns, including winning campaigns, BC liberal Mm. campaigns and stuff. Um, But if he did run, I guess maybe it would it would be maybe in the vein of what Hector Bremner was running on last time. Let's fix housing. Let's loosen up these old Cause that zoning laws. Because campaign did so well last time. I don't, just as an aside, and I'll, I'll kind of leave it at this. I don't know how someone with so many skeletons in their closet gets the balls to even consider running for public office. Who's you that? <laughs> the person we're talking about. <laughs> I don't know if he is right. But, you know, you mentioned him as a possible candidate. Yeah, a different and, lane. and he's, his name has come up, but I would just throw that out there. Oh, I don't uh, know anything about that. <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to fill out the lanes in terms of what's available sure. in Vancouver. So I think you have this pro-business lane. Yeah. I mean, is there a green lane? Well, you know, I don't know. Would Adrian Carr run? Because she was thinking about it last time, and I talked to her before the last election, and she was thinking about... You know, maybe she could be Canada's first green mayor. Would it be? No, I think maybe there's. Anyway, maybe not. Anyway, yeah. uh, she was. It would have been Vancouver's first green mayor. Maybe Canada's. Yeah. Um, and she was definitely thinking about it. She was considering it, but she was. She had to weigh because uh, she had a very safe seat on council. Mm-hmm. If she ran for council, she was going to get reelected. She, she was going to get lots of votes, and she knew that. So if she didn't run for council and then opted to run for mayor it would cost the Greens a seat on council, right? There's no mm. way around that. Um, and so, you know, it was, she had to weigh it for a bit and she had to wait, you know, vision 
at the time she made her decision, Vision was kind of insisting on running a, a mayoral candidate. That obviously didn't work out. Ian Campbell withdrew before election day. But um, it was a very crowded race. I mean, right up to the end, it was a very crowded race. It was a very weird race. Like, yeah. you had um, – usually it's kind of a two-candidate race. But in this case, you had a number of different candidates drawing a lot of attention. And I actually thought Shauna Sylvester was going to win. I know that sounds crazy. No, I don't know. No, she's a good She candidate. did well. Yeah. I just found in my very brief covering of that municipal election, there was so much excitement and energy. And I think I always overvalue that. Like, I just see a certain type of enthusiasm. I'm like, mm. oh, this is going to carry on forever. Mm. And uh, there's a difference between intensity and, and volume, certainly. Yeah. But I think people for, yeah, like, if you're the NPA, you need a quote unquote progressive candidate, a Oh yeah, <laughs> another another progressive candidate to challenge Kennedy. Otherwise, you're getting smoked, right? Oh yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, when is the last time a Vancouver elected like a socially conservative mayor? I, I it's been very long. I don't know. Yeah. Tom Campbell. I don't know. Like, uh, you know, Kennedy Stewart mentioned on on the podcast. Uh, he mentioned Philip Owen's name, and I, I, I the way I took it to be very uh, reverential, like respect. He was saying he, you know, because he was talking about how important it was to him to uh, save lives from the drug crisis. And he's saying, if I could, you see, if he, if he could get. He's saying he was going to wear decriminalization. On yeah. Him if, if it costs him his job, if he's going to be like Philip Owen, because people largely see Philip Owen when he was an NPA mayor and he championed insight and this, you know, first of its kind in North America, supervised injection site. And he took on all these really bold, progressive, um, harm reduction policies and then and then he lost his he lost his job as mayor mm -hmm. um and but people look back on it now like in like kennedy stewart who's you know an opponent of the mpa I, I that was the way i took his mention to me I, I took his reference to philip owen to be very like kind of uh, admiring for this guy his bravery um and so but i mean that that's that's the history of npa uh, mayors, at least in the last couple decades. And, you know, Sam Sullivan, pretty progressive guy, I think, at least, uh, you know. He was. Socially progressive, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he took, he, it, was, it, was, it was, a lot of people commented that his his most recent campaign, which yeah. he lost, which was like, I think one of his, maybe his first ever unsuccessful campaign at any level of office, uh, people commented that it, it seemed like a different kind of a weird side turn. of him. Yeah. Um, which I guess didn't work out for him. It's the first time in a long time the Liberals lost that riding. But, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when he was when he was an NPA mayor, um, you know, I think pretty socially progressive. Like again, it's all relative, right? Like if we in Vancouver we think of the NPA as like the center right kind of party, but like the po the politicians who have been involved with the NPA at least for the last couple of decades, in most other places in North America, they might be considered pretty left wing. I mean, it depends on the issue, I guess. Sure, sure. yeah. yeah. But socially, yeah, pretty progressive. I, I just, it's hard to imagine a sort of socially conservative right. candidate <laughs> yeah. doing really well in Vancouver. I yeah. mean, how many the the federal conservatives have done well at a federal level, but how many how many conservative MPs have there been for Vancouver ridings in the last twenty or thirty years? There was way young, and I can't think of another one. Yeah, which I think is the trend uh, nationally, probably in, right in in bigger cities in terms. Yeah, urban areas yeah. they don't do well. 
Yeah, I remember when I had Ken Sim on the show, and this was, you know, when he was running for for office, he kept referring to himself as a progressive, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. And I also think that we all just have different definitions of what that means. For sure. Oh, it's, right? it's, it's again, it's relative, right? <laughs> Some people just take not being personally socially conservative as I'm progressive. Whereas I think in politics, it means something else. Yeah, and I... I... I don't know. I'm, I couldn't. I'm not sure exactly where Kenson falls on a lot of those issues. He's an interesting candidate. There's this weird character arc. Not weird, but there's this, I should say, persuasive or fascinating character arc that he's taking on of like the guy that came so close and now he's going to double up and do it again. And he's going to do it slightly differently. And maybe he's doing it more on his terms. I'm not sure. Certainly less tied to a party. Hmm. I can never count out a guy like that. You know what I mean? Like someone who's determined to, to get something that they want. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, I would think more people know his name now than than when he first showed up. Yeah. Running I, for the NPA And I do wonder, and again, we're talking about COVID, but like, I wonder how much when we look at business recovery in the city, and after COVID, if we start seeing, like you said, our favorite restaurants, our favorite go-to spots mm. are now closed down, mm. how persuasive a guy like Ken who will come up and say, we need to incentivize businesses to come back, how persuasive that'll be for a Vancouver population. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure every candidate will say that, right? Every candidate will say they want to help small businesses. But right. But they all say it in different ways sure, and, yeah. and speak in and different codes almost, right? Sure. But I mean, if you have, if somebody has specific ideas they want to bring to the table, other than just generically saying they want to help small businesses, who like- Festivals on the street every night. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You know. Or whatever. But yeah, yeah. if you have specific, like having specific ideas is different than saying, no one's going to come out and say- I am against small business. I want to crush small business. Right, but you understand that in a in a rematch, Sim versus Kennedy. Yeah, Sim can point to Kennedy and say, oh, "All these businesses died on your watch. You can you can blame COVID, but it happened." <laughs> and and I'm the business guy. I know how business works. Yeah, I don't know. I mean. Yeah, but again, you got to come with some ideas. What's your idea? What, like, what, like, what, what would? Yeah, and, and he, 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 I'm sure he will come up with some good ideas. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll see, and you know, he's so. already doing it. I mean, he's already talked about night nightlife. I think he had an op-ed in the Daily Hive, and he talked about reviving nightlife in Vancouver. I, I didn't see that actually. But. I don't think he's like we're talking about him on this campaign he's obviously working on some policy <laughs> like it's not oh, yeah. it's not just uh raising money i'm sure he's you know pen to paper trying to figure things some things out or yeah, what might I, be popular i think so yeah yeah i want to end on this note because mm. it was an interesting story what happened with you and Colleen Hardwick because you her, I, we had this weird intersection. Hmm. There was a miscommunication of who quoted who, and then you wrote an article about it. You got my name in the Vancouver Sun mm. right on the front page where it belongs. <laughs> that was a weird entanglement where I, I, I brought a quote from you. Yeah. And then she said she never said it. Yeah. And then kind of went even further as opposed to I didn't say it, like you know, was accusatory in, in a sense. And then you ended up having a conversation with her and, and then writing this article about being yeah, quoted well, and. Yeah. I mean, when she was on the show, 
she said that she hadn't said something, and she said that an editor at the Vancouver Sun made it up. And then when I spoke with her after I heard the show, and I said, you did say this, um, she acknowledged that she had misspoken on the show, and uh, she apologized. And so, you know, it wasn't it, nothing personal against her, but we just thought it was important to correct the public record um, because we thought that someone listening to the show might have reasonably uh, understood her comment to say that someone at the Vancouver Sun had fabricated a quote, mm-hmm. which is not something that we do. And that wouldn't be a small thing. That would be a, you know, that's not something that happens. And mm-hmm. so she acknowledged that she had misspoken on the show and she apologized. And, that, and I think that's fine. And people, you know, um, but we just, you know, we thought it was good to correct the record. And, you know, I have nothing against Councillor Hardwick. Sure, I think she's no, a very no. hardworking counselor. And, and, <laughs> and everyone's doing their job, right? I'm, I'm not criticizing one person or, or the other. And certainly it's possible to misremember things or forget that you said something or just say something, say something the wrong way, mm. I guess. Right. Was that a unique experience for you though? I don't, th- I think so. I don't, you do think I, so or you don't? Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I was sorry. I was starting to say, I don't think I've ever had someone, um, yeah. Accuse. Now to be clear, she didn't say, Dan Fumano made up that quote. She said an editor no, at the right. Sun made yeah. it up, which was a curious thing too, because the quote was right in the, the column that I wrote where I was mm-hmm. quoting her as direct quote in quotation marks. Um, so I don't think I've ever had someone uh, tell me that they were misquoted. At least, at least maybe they've said it to other people. Oh, Fumano misquoted me. I never said that, but I don't think anyone's ever said it to me. Um, I mean, if I'm ever misquoted by you, can, what do I do? What's my recourse? Well, you would contact me and let me know, and and <laughs> and and then I could say, okay, you want to listen to the tape? Okay. I mean, almost every conversation I have is recorded, and I mean, in in most cases, you you know, in the in the case of this conversation with Councillor Hardwick, we were sitting in a coffee shop, and I took out my recorder and said, oh, do you mind if I start it now? Yeah, sure. So she knew the conversation was recorded. If she genuinely thought she had been misquoted, um, and again, I'm not totally clear if she thought she had been misquoted or not, but. The, the usual, so not in her case, but in general, mm-hmm. you could or contact you could contact the reporter, you could contact their editor or the, the senior editors. You could, you could contact the reporter first and say, I think I was misquoted. Misquotations do happen. Sometimes there's honest mistakes. Someone mishears something. Um, but I've, I don't know. I, I've never personally had that happen, that someone accused of a misquotation. Like, mm-hmm. again, um, um, so... It's 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 not a common thing in yeah. my experience, no. No, fair enough. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we we strive to we strive for accuracy. That's the most important thing. And mistakes do happen sometimes. I made a math error in a story recently, and it was a not like a serious story. It was kind of like a fun story, but I made a small math error, and uh, we, you know, I mean, like, yeah, we strive for accuracy, and then when we do make a mistake, we do we are public about it yeah, and transparent and we apologize, but you know, this wasn't. So if someone thinks that you've reported something wrong, they can contact you and ask for a retraction, ask for a correction and we'll run a public correction saying, oh, incorrect information ran on this. You know, we made a mistake, whatever. Um, but you know, that didn't happen in this case, which, yeah. which was surprising to me. If someone feels like they've been misquoted, they can easily, I'm easy to find.
You're easy to find. You're hard to get on a podcast, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was waiting until the mayor could be the opening act. Right. <laughs> o- o- open up for me. No. Just dissect his uh, all his words. No, no, no. You need to come back on. I think, uh, you know, if I'm still doing this by next year, we'll get you on. We'll we'll either preview or, or post-view the uh, municipal election. Because yeah. I think it's going to be interesting. And I'm already very fascinated by some of the players that are emerging and some of the talk that's emerging and some of the narratives that are emerging. Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be. Yeah. Because I feel like the last election was crazy. It was a weird election for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. I think the next election is going to, I don't know. I think it's going to be kind of crazy. Do you think we're going to get more candidates or less candidates? There can't be more, <laughs> can there? Like, <laughs> there? There couldn't be more than there were last time. Yeah. Um, although, yeah, even, um, yeah, uh, council actually recently approved some measures to make it just a little bit harder to run. Uh, they they were increasing. Oh, they did. Yeah, they did. So increasing the number of signatures you have to get to have your That's name good. on the ballot. That's a good way to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's. I I think I, I wouldn't agree with sort of increasing the financial hurdles to yes, run. Right. Yeah. So I think but signatures. But signatures. You have to show if you some can't support. Get, I, I can't remember what the numbers are, but I think previously you needed like twenty five signatures to run for mayor. That's it. It wasn't a lot. I you know what I I, sh- I shouldn't speculate because I can't remember exactly what number one. D- but when you hear two digits. Oh, yeah. When you hear the number of signatures, you're like, it doesn't sound like a lot. Well, because, yeah, I mean, there were some candidates on the ballot. There were a lot of mayoral candidates last time. I'm still on Golak's mailing list. I uh, I don't know how I landed no, no, on yeah, it. Yeah. No, no, I get, I get mails from... I, I interviewed Golak for that story. Very nice guy, Golak. He's, he's, he's available. He's around. He keeps running. Um, no, no, no. And he had thoughts about it. He, You might not be surprised. He thought it was a bad thing to discourage democratic participation and any increasing obstacles to having people run as candidates he thought was a bad thing um yeah i mean golok zed bude has been he's been running for office since he was a teenager i think yeah we found an old clipping from the province from i don't know 20 years ago or 30 years ago um so you know good on him he's getting out there you know if he meets the eligibility requirements and he's doing it great (laughs) <laughs> yeah. from Ottawa, man this was fun hey thanks, thanks so much for me, Mo. thanks for the beers hey thank you and uh, we'll do it again sure <laughs> let's do it people if you live in vancouver proper you have to read everything this guy writes he will keep you informed he is the city journalist and columnist for the vancouver sun and province newspapers he is dan fumano and i am mo amir telling you That in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.